wrestling with some new technology. <laughs> so today we are um, continuing week three of this worship series we began a couple of weeks ago called Great Expectations. We've been looking at several scripture passages that have something to say to us about um, God's expectations. Again, not expectations full of obligation or dread or guilt, but obligations that are just ripe with possibility and opportunity. Two weeks ago, <clears throat> we looked at, at this passage from the sixth chapter of Micah, where the prophet Micah asks an important question, what does the Lord require of you? And the response that we get in three parts, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. <clears throat> so we spent some time digging into that, into those three pieces a little bit. What does it mean to be people who do justice and people who embrace loving kindness and people who walk humbly with God. Last week, we shared our Easter egg challenges. Remember that? Those of you who are here on Easter Sunday and got an egg with a challenge in it. Um, in the framework of this scripture passage where a Pharisee comes to Jesus and he says, of all the laws in the Hebrew scriptures, what we think of as the Old Testament, which one is the greatest? And... Um, Matthew tells us he was asking this question to test Jesus. Because if you remember, there, does anybody remember how many laws there are in the, in the Torah, the first five books of the... 613 or something. Six, you got it. 613 <laughs> different laws. And for the Israelites, faith was about trying to fulfill all of those laws every day. Doing the do's and don'ting the don'ts. Which is a heavy... Um, burden in some ways if you're trying to do all 613. So this Pharisee says, which one is the greatest? And Jesus says, the greatest is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second greatest, one like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting two verses out of the Torah, out of the, out of the Hebrew scriptures. Today we're going to look at this scripture passage from the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, sometimes called the Great Commission. We're going to be talking about what that means. And then next Sunday, ending this series, um, looking at a passage where the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest? And Jesus answers, the greatest is the one who serves. So we're looking at some of these great scripture passages to understand more fully um, these great expectations. So today from Matthew chapter 28. Now these are the very last words in Matthew's gospel. Before I read them, I want to uh, just explore that word a little bit. What does the word commission mean to you? It's not a word we use a lot in our everyday vocabulary, but can you think of a context in which we use that word? How do, how do we use that word? You may think of one? Yes, what people get when they sell. Yes, exactly. To earn a percentage of whatever sales for which you are responsible, right? You get a commission on a car or a pair of shoes or whatever it is you have to be selling. A house, yes, exactly. Real estate agents. Another way we use the word commission? Commission a boat, somebody to build a boat or to do a painting, you commission. Exactly. Commission a boat, commission a painting. You charge somebody with something specific that you want, okay? A rank in the armed services. A rank in the armed services. I didn't even think about that one. That's a commission. Okay, yeah, sure. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The other one I was thinking of is sometimes we say somebody is out of commission. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which means what? Don't wait no more. 
Elizabeth has sort of been out of commission, although she didn't let us slow her down her much. She kind of kept on going, but I'm sure there are times when you felt out of commission. Right. My first thought is a committee. A committee or a commission, yeah. Sometimes at a church, we bring a group of people together and we say, this is a commission. And, and what is that? You know, I think of it more than the governmental. And, okay. You know, and a government commission. Yeah. Sure. A group of people. Um, we do it in the church, too, by the way. There are commissions on all sorts of different things. It's an organization that carries out a task. So. Carries out a task. So this is starting to get at why we call this particular passage the Great Commission, even though Jesus never used the word commission. It's sort of implied in there. To be commissioned means to be sent with a task, to be authorized for something, charged with something, empowered for something. That is to be commissioned. So I want you to keep that in mind um, as I read these words. Now, to put this in context, these are Jesus' very last words to his disciples in Matthew's Gospel. After the resurrection, after Jesus' death, after the resurrection, just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus' final words to his disciples. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Let me just stop there for a second. Eleven disciples? I thought there were twelve. What's going on here? Oops. Oops. Judas. Judas is no longer with the twelve. Remember, Judas betrayed and I can't remember if in Matthew's gospel if he commits suicide or not. I think he does. Yeah, I think it's Matthew. Yeah. So Judas is no longer with the twelve. Um, and so now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Which just means these disciples are human, just like us, right? They worship him, but some doubted. And, and worship and doubt is all part of the faith journey for, for all of us. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what we call the Great Commission. So I always think that final words are important. Final words are important. If you're getting ready to go on a trip, you hope that the final words that you say to someone you care about are the right ones, right? So if you're getting ready to go on a long trip, what might be the final words that you say to someone that you love, someone you really care about? <coughs> Ideas? Come home. Come home, okay. Or I, I will come home. I will be back. I will be back. <laughs> okay. I love you. I love you. Be careful. Be careful. Don't forget to feed the cat. Don't forget to feed the cat. <laughs> Have a wonderful time. Have a wonderful time. These are all final words. And if you've ever had the experience of final words that you regretted, you know how important final words are. Anybody ever had the experience of leaving in, a, in haste or in anger and final words that you regretted? That's kind of part of the human experience as well. And then the final words before death, that makes it all the more significant. These are Jesus' final, final words. He's died, he's been, he's been raised again, now he's ascending into heaven. So he's leaving them with final, final, final words. Important. The first word in this commission is this one. 
go. Not stay, not status quo, not comfort zone, but on the move, out of your seat, it's time to go, right? I think that's really significant. This word implies movement, doesn't it? And that's what we are called to be as followers of Jesus, a movement. Not a, a, an institution, not a club, not a museum, a movement. We have been commissioned, we have been sent, go. The second word, therefore. Well, that's a word we don't use all that often in conversation either. Any of you ever use that word a lot? Therefore. You have to have just the right context to use that word. What does that word therefore mean? I think we use it in writing much more than we do in spoken language. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. That being said. That being said. Something, something, something. Right? Okay? Therefore. What does that make you think about? As a result of something else, right? Yes. Yeah. Because. Because is another word that's sort of in the same kind of category. It's sort of like Jesus says, because of everything else that I've said to you over the last three years, now this. Therefore. Or let me summarize this way. Or you remember all that other stuff I told you before? Now listen to this. It's, it's kind of the exclamation point, isn't it? The word therefore, I think, always implies a pronouncement. You don't use a word therefore unless you're really pronouncing something significant. Go therefore. And then finally, make disciples of, of all people. Now we're going to talk about this word disciple in a minute. But I wanted to say, I confess that I sometimes struggle with these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'll tell you why I struggle with it. And first of all, I should say, this is actually the mission statement of the United Methodist Church, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. To make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. So it's not just about making disciples for the sake of making disciples, but with a larger mission in mind, which is about transformation, transformation of the world. But here's why I struggle sometimes with, with this phrase. I don't, I'm not totally sure that you or I can make someone into something else. <laughs> and that makes me a little bit sort of, it makes me a little squirm a little bit actually. Like, like someone new walks through the door and we think, aha, therefore I am going to make that person into a disciple. <laughs> That's not really how discipleship works, is it? Discipleship is a little more nuanced than that. It's about a journey, it's about relationships. It's about transformation, but it's the work of God in someone's life. It's the work of grace. It's not really something we do to someone else. Sometimes this, this phrase, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, has been read as if it's a call to a conquest, or as if it's a call to build an empire, as if Jesus is saying, go and dominate the world in my name. You think, is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think that, that's kind of antithetical to everything else that Jesus says. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying, go and dominate the world in my name? That's not really what Jesus was about. Yet these are words that we have, that we should pay attention to. They're important words. And there is a call in here, a commission, to go and share something of what we have received, heard, understood, 
and how that has been transformational in our own lives. Okay, so let's talk about this word disciple for a minute. What's a disciple? If we're going to make them in one way or another, we kind of ought to know what it is we're doing here. So what's a disciple? A follower? A believer? A learner. A learner. That's actually literally what the word disciple is, a learner. Sort of like a student. Follower, sort of, we think of it that way because Jesus called disciples to follow. And, and it is a, a learning that involves following as well, I think. I'd put an action element in that. Action, okay. Again, this idea of movement. Involves discipline. Discipline, yeah. See how close that word is to discipline? Put a couple extra letters right there and you get discipline. And why is that significant? We um, need to have focus in our life and uh, have a means to hold ourselves accountable to carrying out that task. Absolutely. And it requires practice, doesn't it? Like any discipline. It requires, um, it requires practice. It requires being intentional. That's what Jesus called the original disciples to. That's what Jesus calls us to. And that's what Jesus calls us to invite others to as well. When Jesus called his first disciples, he was calling them to a radical new way of life. And it was a way to be learned by immersion. What does it mean to be immersed in something or to learn by immersion? Utterly surrounded. Utterly surrounded. Anybody ever had an immersion experience of anything? What was yours? I lived in Germany for a year, my junior year of high school. And what was that like? Scary. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was really educational. It's the best way to learn something. Like a language, culture, especially. Culture. Yeah. Um, but it feels very alien at first. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah spent three months in Peru, right around the time we started dating. And I remember, what was that like for you? Hard. Hard. Really hard. Yeah. For a month. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think more. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the phone calls have always started with tears because she was learning Spanish by immersion, and that was an incredible gift. But when you're surrounded by people who speak a language that you learned by textbook, and you don't know it intuitively or by heart, just really isolating. It was a it was a hard but but wonderful at the same time, and your experience is probably similar. So learning by experience is the best way to learn, and also the most probably challenging on lots of different levels. That's how Jesus invited his disciples to learn this radical new way of being, a life that was focused on loving, serving, giving for the sake of others, living generously. And his disciples were invited to experience transformation as they were being formed into Christ-likeness. Now think about this for a minute. What Jesus was inviting them to do was to be like him. And what better way to learn how to be like someone than to be with them all the time? That's immersion, right? And our call is to Christ-likeness as well. I mean, that is the definition of disciple, is a call to Christ-likeness, to, to transformation, to a whole new way of being. The question is whether this message that we've received, this way of following Jesus, this way of love and joy and peace, this way of justice, this way of hospitality and hope and healing, is something that we're meant to keep as a secret or something we're meant to share. Can you imagine if Jesus' final words to his disciples were something like this? You remember all that stuff we talked about over the last three years and all those experiences we shared together? 
and me. Can you imagine if that's how Jesus ended his journey? I mean, he did actually along the way say, don't tell anyone. But here in this moment at the end, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them, teach them, immerse them in this way of being. So I want to read these words from the message because I think the, the challenge that I sometimes have with this go therefore and make disciples thing is more about translation and nuance than it is about what Jesus really meant here. It's that domination thing that sometimes trips me up. So here's how Eugene Peterson interprets these words in the message. Meanwhile, the 11 disciples were on their way to Galilee, headed for, this, for the mountain Jesus had set for their reunion. The moment they saw him, they worshipped him. Some, though, held back, not sure about worship, about risking themselves totally. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life. And get that? Train everyone you meet in this way of life. Marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then instruct them in the practice, the discipline of all I have commanded you. Remember the commandments from last week? Love God, love your neighbor. And I will be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up until the end of the age. Well, those are beautiful words, aren't they? Those are beautiful words. We've been commissioned. So... Here's a word that has a little baggage. <laughs> what do you think of when you see that word or when I say the word evangelism? What do you think about? Right wing. Right wing, okay. Colonialism. Colonialism, in what way? Like? How the Europeans taking over the world and yeah. domination. That domination thing, right? Making the name of Christ right. and making Christian nations and right. killing. So that's on the grand scale. And what about on sort of more, a smaller scale? Evangelism. Anxiety. 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 Yeah. So, is this familiar? Anybody seen this guy? This guy, this is Terry, by the way, who is an evangelist in his own way. He stands at Congress Square up here at the end of our street, the Monument Square. He makes his way around from the University of Southern Maine, the Southern Maine Community College. Anybody seen Terry? Oh, yeah. Yes, a lot of people have. <laughs> so here's what I want to say about Terry. I am sure, I trust, that his heart is in the right place. I don't question his motives. I, my guess is... And I've never really had a conversation with him because he doesn't really have conversations. He kind of yells mm -hmm. at people, right? Mm -hmm. But my guess is that he has experienced transformation in his own life. And he wants to share that with others. I'm trying to put a positive framework around this, right? And because he understands this message of Jesus, something like this, you leave today so that when you die, you will go to heaven. He feels an urgency about making sure that others have heard this message. There's an urgency about it, right? I just have a feeling that this particular tech, well, I'm going to ask you, how do you think this is working? <laughs> what do you think? How do you think it's working? Yeah, I mean, those of you who have seen him, what's your experience? And again, I don't mean to condemn, 
because I think his heart's probably in the right place. But what's your experience if you have seen him? Don't want to go near him? How come? Direct, confrontational even. Yeah, yeah? yeah. Norbert? I think that uh, what I'm doing in my notes, uh, people don't have really much time to stand and listen to him. But from my experience, uh, yeah. I have seen evangelists like, like him in Nairobi, in Kenya. Yeah. These works, people stop and listen. Sure. Uh, so it's, um, I, I think that there's a culture of those aspects. I think you're exactly right. And, and it's, it's a culture thing. And actually, Methodism started with street preaching as well. But in this culture, it's, I would suggest it's not just about not having time to stop. It's that there's this fine line between being inviting and being really off-putting. And um, in this culture, this is a really tough technique. So this is, um, this is the same guy maybe a year and a half ago. I don't know if any of you remember when Lady Gaga was at Deering Oaks, oh, yeah. talking just before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And Lady Gaga was speaking, and there were thousands, literally thousands of people, and this was his little setting up his. Also, I also love the way that the American flag always gets pulled into this, so there's, there really is this sort of imperialist thing about it. Anyway, my biggest critique is I just don't think this is a technique that works very well. So I've recently read this book called More Ready Than You Realize. The Power of Everyday Conversations. It's written by Brian McLaren, who's one of the leading voices in a movement called the Emerging Church Movement. And this is a book about evangelism. And I loved it. So I wanted to share a little bit, from just a few words from this book. And if anyone wants to read it, you're welcome to borrow it. So Brian McLaren says, on the street, evangelism is equated with pressure. It means selling God as if God were vinyl siding, replacement windows, or a mortgage refinancing service. It means shoving your ideas down someone's throat, threatening him with hell if he does not capitulate to your logic or scripture quoting. It means excluding everyone from God's grace except those who agree with the evangelizer. When preceded by the word television, the word evangelism grows even darker, more sinister, sleazy even. It means rehearsed mechanical monologues, sales pitches, feels, unrequested sermons or lectures. Crocodile tears, uncomfortable confrontations, sometimes made worse by nutrisweet smiles and overdone eye contact, and too sincere professions of love for one's soul and concern for one's eternal destiny. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is the baggage that this word has for us. Now I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to reclaim this word. I'm not suggesting we throw out the word or the concept. It's just about thinking about what is effective. So this is the reputation evangelism has for most people. But consider this. What if, what if there really is a great God? I think we should just stop and celebrate because I don't know what the singing is, but it's wonderful. No, this is the kids. Oh, it's the kids. Okay, I thought it was Oh, great, okay. <laughs> so while the kids are bringing joy here, let's stop and consider this what if. What if? There really is a great and good and kind God. And we humans really are God's creatures, although we sometimes lose our way. And what if our deepest dream is really true, that the God who really exists really loves us? 
And what if one of the best ways for God to get through to those of us who have lost our way is through the kindness and influence of others? And what if for every obvious and sleazy religious huckster, there are in fact a dozen subtle but sincere examples of spiritual authenticity and vibrancy whose influences would do the rest of us a lot of good? And what if there really are angels out there, not of the wings and halos type, but of the flesh and blood, laughter and tears type, people who are literally sent by God to intervene, to help those of us who've mucked up our lives, to give a taste of grace. Well, that's a pretty powerful what if, isn't it? Mm. So, um, Brian McLaren offers a definition of effective evangelism. Here's what he said. Evangelists are people who engage others in good conversation about important and profound topics such as faith, values, hope, meaning, purpose, goodness, beauty, truth, life after death, life before death, and God. What strikes you about this definition of evangelism? And you can contrast it, if you want, with this definition of evangelism. What did you say, Patty? Conversation. Conversation. What does that word imply? Back and forth. Back and forth. Conversation is two-way, isn't it? That's important. Okay, what else strikes you about this definition? Oh, I'm sorry. We'll get to that one. We're engaging. Engaging. Engaging is inviting. Yeah. And there is a fine line between engaging and pushing away, which is tricky because that line is in a different place for everybody. And it's and culture is very significant, as Norbert reminded us. From what I understand, that gentleman, he I don't know if he runs a home or a house or whatever, but he does help people that have substance abuse. Mm -hmm. um, but he's so about life after death. It's also about life before death, right? What if it really is true that Jesus came bringing us hope and love and joy and peace, not just by and by when we die, but in this life here and now? I mean, if there really is something that is profound and life-giving and hopeful about following Jesus in this life, why would we want to keep that a secret? Why not share it in a way that is life-giving and not condemning for others, right? That's the question. So Brian McLaren offers these words about Jesus, and I think these are significant. Jesus was short on sermons, long on conversations. Although if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it goes on for like several chapters. That's a long sermon, but in general. Jesus was short on sermons, long on conversations. Short on answers, long on questions. You ever noticed when somebody asks Jesus a question in the Bible, how does he usually answer them? With another question. That was his technique. Someone asks you a question, you ask them a question. Short on abstractions and propositions, long on stories and parables. Short on telling you what to think, long on challenging you to think for yourself. Short on condemning the irreligious, 
long on confronting the religious. This is true. Just try take a few minutes and read one of the Gospels, and you will see that this is very true. And this provides for us a model of how to engage in conversation with others. Evangelism, as much as anything, is about posture. And there are two postures that we can take. One is a posture of exclusion. It goes something like this. We are on the inside. You are on the outside. We are right. You are wrong. So if you want to come inside, then all you need to do is be right. So think right, believe right, speak right, and act right, and then we'll let you in. That's a posture of exclusion. And those words are never spoken out loud. They're just totally implicit in the posture that we take with others. So that's a posture of exclusion. Here's a posture of inclusion. We are a community drawn together and energized by faith, love, and commitment to Jesus Christ. Even though you may, you may or may not share that faith, that love, or that commitment, but you are welcome here. You see how that's a posture of inclusion. I really believe that most of the time for most people, belonging precedes believing. Now think about that for a second. What do I mean when I say that? Belonging precedes believing. Any ideas? What am I getting at here? It's physical, not emotional. Physical, not emotional. In what way? You're belonging physically, but you're not believing. Or even belonging emotionally, I'm thinking. Just, but bring the body and the mind will follow. Bring the body and the mind will follow. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. But it, sometimes people think you have to have a conversion experience and then you become a Christian. Right. But it's more happens that people are, are in a community or with Christians and then they experience the conversion. They might not have any name or date or time to right. get to it. But the exclusionary people want a time, right. a date that right. you can remember, that you committed. So what if it's about the relationships first, and then over time, and that's what you, I hear you saying, over time you experience transformation, and maybe you don't even realize it until you look back. And it's sort of like climbing a mountain, and it's only when you get to the top and you look down you realize how far you've actually climbed, right? If you've ever had any experience of hiking, you know what that's like. It's the immersion experience. It's the immersion experience, right? So belonging precedes believing. Sometimes by a long time, being part of a community, and then over time, you start to be formed by that experience. And I think that the greatest longing that people have in life is to belong, to be loved, to be accepted, to be known, to share struggles, and not to be rejected or disqualified. That's the longing to belong which I think Jesus practiced. So we have, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the great requirement, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. We've talked about the great commandment, which is actually two, love God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about the great commission, go therefore and make disciples. And I want to think about that in this posture of inclusion, conversation, journeying with someone in relationship. And now you have a, an assignment. Here's your mission. I'm going to commission you. I want to invite you to think of one person with whom you might share one of those conversations, this, this kind. One person with whom you might share some good conversation about important and profound topics such as faith, values, hope, meaning, purpose, goodness, beauty, 
truth, life after death, life before death, and God. I want to invite you, first of all, to pray for that person. Maybe it's someone you know that's really going through a difficult time right now. Or someone for whom you think some part of the experience you've had being part of this faith community or just in your faith journey in general might be helpful to that person, might give hope to that person. Pray for the person, and then pray for a sense of the openings where you might have a conversation. These are conversations without an agenda. This is important. I'm not saying set a goal by June 1st, this person will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, or this person will come to worship with me. This is agenda-free conversation. And I want to invite you to think of one person and to have a conversation when it feels right. It may take a long time before you get to that place. And one thing I can almost guarantee is that if you have that conversation, it is almost certain to be life-giving for you as well as for that person, because this is about relationship, back and forth. So we have been commissioned. I want to end with um, what Brian McLaren calls his benediction in this book. May the Spirit of Christ empower you to love and serve your neighbors, welcoming them into your lives and homes and schedules and hearts so that through belonging they may discover the joys of believing and becoming. You are more ready for this than you realize. Go in God's grace and peace.